Today's episode of the Theater People podcast is brought to you by TodayTix. Download the app in Google Play or the App Store and use the code THEATERPEOPLE at checkout to save 20 bucks on your first purchase. That code again is THEATERPEOPLE, which of course is theater with an E-R-P-P-L. Hey, Theater People, Patrick here. If you love the Theater People podcast, I want to encourage you to check out BroadwayCon, the podcast. That podcast is a partnership between BroadwayCon Media and Theater People. It's produced and hosted by me, and it's tons of fun. Just like the panels you'll see at BroadwayCon itself, on BroadwayCon, the podcast, we have conversations with people of all theatrical stripes. We chat with huge Broadway stars like Laura Benanti and Leslie Margarita, and stage managers and directors and everything in between. You can find all the episodes at BroadwayCon.com or by searching iTunes, Stitcher, or any place else that podcasts live for BroadwayCon, the podcast. Okay, now to the show. Welcome to the Theater People Podcast. I'm Patrick Hines, your host. All right, you guys, longtime listeners know this story well, so bear with me if you've heard it a million times. I promise I will try to keep it quick. So way back in 2003, when I was trying to break into the freelance writing game, I got a call from a young director I sort of knew named Tommy Kale. He and his small theater company were based out of the basement theater of the drama bookshop on 40th Street, and they were working on this new hip-hop musical called In the Heights. Tommy thought I'd be interested in covering it because the show had a prominent gay storyline. That obviously changed over the course of the five years between then and Broadway. Anyway, Tommy hooked me up with the then-unknown Lin-Manuel Miranda. We spent a day together, and I wrote what would become the very first published story about Lin and In the Heights. And yes, I still tell that to anyone who will listen. Anyway, in the years since then, it has been so exciting to watch Tommy go on to become one of the most celebrated directors working on Broadway today. And it was just delightful to have the chance to catch up with him for this interview. Something that will become clear very quickly in this interview is that we spend just a few minutes talking about In the Heights. We actually talked at great length about the show, but we're saving that portion of the interview for another exciting project we're working on that we'll be announcing in the next few weeks. So stay tuned. So we'll jump into the conversation with Tommy at the point where, after a successful off-Broadway run, Tommy was preparing to direct the show on Broadway. Okay, here we go. When did you find out it was going to go to Broadway? And was there, like, the little kid in you that, like, the heart exploded knowing that you were going to direct for Broadway? Or were you, like... Laser focused. I was a little more the second because I didn't necessarily grow up. I grew up dreaming of either being a professional athlete or a broadcaster. So I, I didn't have a an I, I didn't have an idea that directing was a, a a livelihood or a job you could have. It just it didn't occur to me. I watched movies. I would go see theater, but I wasn't like staring at the playbill and thinking who made this. I was just thinking it happened. Like most kids, I was just like, oh well, that happened. This group of people were there, and and now. They're telling this story. That's so interesting. So, obviously, by the time I was 20 and 29, I was aware of the director's <laughs> role. But as a child, I did not think of that at all. I didn't, it didn't even occur to me, really, until I went to college and started doing it. So, the short of it is, you know, if, if the range of emotions is 1 through 10, and 10 is incredibly excited and elated, and 1 is, you know, despondent, I don't really mess with 1, 2, and 3, and I don't really mess with 8, 9, and 10. 
Like, I just sort of stay between four and seven. <laughs> so really good news makes me happy. But it also is within um, sort of a subset where I'm not really – I'm not living on those extreme margins on either side. So I – I sort of tend to float, you know, somewhere in between those things. And it doesn't mean I'm not, I'm capable of feeling joy. <laughs> but I also, I don't really let, like, the, the needle go to one end or the other. So it was probably, you know, after the show opened and the reviews were pretty good. But the, it was not like, move the show to Broadway or else. It was not that, that kind of critical response, although it was very positive And a lot of really nice things were said about the show. It was, it was a set of very encouraging reviews. Keep going. It was you know, something that, that felt like it was kind of the subtext of a lot of them. And we had producers who were risk takers. And they said, we'll find an audience. And they, and they said, and that's our job to find the audience. Let's all work together to make the show you know, the most excellent thing it can be. Let's take the time. So the show learned a lot when we were off Broadway for six months. And then we had six months to work on the show before we went back into rehearsal. And I probably knew, you know, maybe a couple months into the run, maybe, maybe even less than that, where the, I remember going out to dinner with the producers and, and Lynn and Kiara Hudes and them saying, we're committed to this. Let's learn as much as we can and keep our heads down and just work harder because there's more to be done. But we believe that we can find an audience for this show. And one of the things that that happens, you know, especially with a commercial off-Broadway, which is it's a slightly um, narrow window in, in New York City, if it's not an institutional theater, they said, we're going to find an audience that will come see our show just because it's on Broadway. You're, you're part of a larger organism. So some people will come to town and say, I want to see a Broadway show. And if you are part of the Broadway community, you know, we might not have been selling every seat at that 499-seat theater. And then we moved into a theater that was 1,340 seats. So... But we never played to, it seemed, less than seven or 800 people early on. So like, you were just finding more people. There was more access to it. And the word of mouth started to grow a little faster because now you're playing to 1,000 people instead of 450 people. So it's two times the word of mouth that was going out. And people's experience at the show was very positive. Mm-hmm. And they liked seeing it. And they, they liked bringing people to come and see that. And, and I have a theory that you send people to plays, but you bring them to musicals. So if you really like a play, you're like, oh, you should go see this play. But I'm not going to take you there necessarily. If you like a musical, what you say is, I'm going to go with you because you want to experience that. And that's why musicals run uh, you know, a long time. That's why they're selling many tickets is because you'll meet someone who has seen Rent 10 or 15 times, someone who's seen Wicked 10 or 15 times, Jersey Boys, Mamma Mia, um, The Producers, Spring Awakening, um, you know, even shows that don't end up running will still have that, that audience that will go see the show 10 or 15 times, not even think twice about it. I wanted to move on to talk about um, Lombardi and Magic Bird. Please. Because between these two musicals, you did these two plays that were very like sports-oriented, and I didn't know about you that you were a sports guy. Yes. So it seems like it makes sense that those shows came to you. And, and, and how did they come to you, and, and did you – like? Did, I mean, I think Lombardi is remembered as being like important, and people really loved it, and Magic Bird happened a little faster. It mm-hmm. kind of came and went a little faster. Yes. What was the difference in the experiences, and, and why did you want to be a part of those shows? They were both incredibly positive experiences. So what happened was after Heights, I did a production of The Wiz at City Center. Mm-hmm. I did that in the summer of 2009 with Andy Blankenbuehler and Alex Lacamoire and David Corns designed it and Taswell and you know, a lot of collaborators that I ended up working with a lot. And we did that, that production 
and it was very it was it was like you know like crazy fast and we di- and we did it and it was like the next thing we had done since um i'd done a play at lincoln center called brokeology at, 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 that i had come from williamstown and that was kind of in 2008 2009 and this was the next musical i was doing and you know i'd only directed a few musicals uh, most of the things i directed were plays i mean i was in a basement with you know 10 foot <laughs> ceilings i was not doing a lot of musicals i've even been to the drama bookshop but yeah. i was not doing a lot of big splashy musicals so i was always fascinated by sports i was always fascinated by that that um that kind of community, the bonding that would happen at a sporting event felt very similar to people that save their tickets and their, their playbills. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is when you go to a sporting event, you actually don't know how the story is going to turn out. It's one of the few things left that actually has a little bit of tension there. And so I was always fascinated by leadership because coaching and directing always felt like the same thing to me. So I'd read an article that Tony Pontero and Fran Kermser had optioned this book by David Marinus about Vince Lombardi. And Vince Lombardi coached for one year for the Washington Redskins. So he had obviously made his mark with the Green Bay Packers, but being a, from Northern Virginia in the D.C. area, and the, and the Washington Redskins were my very favorite football team, I, I knew about Lombardi, and I was intrigued by this. And I thought, oh, here's a chance for me actually to examine leadership, because I'm not going to direct a play about a director. I, I just That didn't feel like it was something I was going to do. Mm-hmm. But I was able to now get into the room. Tony had was on the board at City Center, so he had seen my work and had seen had seen Heights. And so John Bazzetti was my agent, um, still is my agent. And I I said to him, "Look, I, I, I'd like to get in the room on this. Do you think I have a chance?" And he put me in the room. So I then sat with Tony and Fran, and in that very first meeting, we started talking about casting. And Dan Loria was an old pal of mine, and I said, "Well, I have a I have a guy that I I think is actually him." Now I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to just, you know, say that and then, you know, sort of drop the mic and walk out. But <laughs> I think this might be the guy. And they had been thinking about him. They knew about him. They said, you think he'd read the script? And so I was like, I'll text him in the elevator. Sure. <laughs> um, and so Dan's like, all right, I'll come out and do it. <laughs> so Dan got on a plane. Yeah, I spent a lot of time with that guy. That's like much happier than he is, though. Um, so Dan came and did a reading of the script by Eric Simonson. I met with Eric first. Obviously, there was like a process there to make sure that Eric and I got along, and we did. And then we did a reading just around a table in Tony's office, and something the, something happened. There was an alchemy between that role and Dan, and that got the NFL very excited, and Tony and Fran, and it just kind of became this this uh, this thing that sort of shouldn't have happened, but it did. You know, all of a sudden there was this play that was being done in the round, um, which was the theater that that we felt was really right for it. And, you know, the folks at Circle were really open to hosting us there. And the NFL got got very behind the show, and Tony and Fran knew exactly what they wanted to do and how to find a new audience. And we started having a lot of people come find the show who had never seen a play, mm-hmm. not who had never seen theater. I mean, had never seen a play. If they'd seen something in the theater, it was a musical. And they were coming, and it was families, and it was mothers and daughters and fathers and sons and fours and sixes coming, you know, wearing Giants jerseys or holding a Green Bay wow. Packer helmet. And it was, and because we we're in the round, you know, it yeah. just, it really felt like we were all witnessing this thing together. And it was a really, it was an incredibly fun and, and hardworking group. And we just loved doing the show. And, and Dan suggested Judith to me and, oh, God, I mean, that woman. And you're welcome, America. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just gosh. does not get better it than really, Judith Light. Can I do something? Yeah. It really doesn't. Oh, I, I, I've never said a word to her. I, I've never gotten to meet her, but she just is me like. Me neither. <laughs> 
She just seems to me like the kindest soul in the world. Well, I mean, she is someone whose last name, it's like a morality play. Like, of course, right. her last name is Light. Yeah. Um, totally. So that cast was, was incredible. Um, you know, it was just, it was such a good group. Keith Nobbs and Bill Dawes, Rob Riley and Chris Sullivan, and then Dan and, and, and Judith. And, you know, there was, there was nothing on stage. It was like, you know, a, like a couch that came and went. I mean, it was right. really like a very spare production. David Corns designed that as well. And we just loved doing it. And through that process, um, Fran and Tony had the idea with Eric to do uh, the Magic Bird Project. Mm-hmm. I think Tony and Fran had the idea initially and then brought it to Eric and then asked me if I wanted to do it. And it was like, sure, let's get the band back together. Mm-hmm. So it was an incredibly joyous opportunity to make something. And, you know, Bird and Magic were mm-hmm. heroes of mine. And and mostly what I, what I think I found compelling about the story was it was this it was a love story between these two men. It was the, these two brothers. Right. Um, and I hadn't seen that on stage. Um, there was a documentary called courtship of rivals that a friend of mine named Ezra Edelman had made. And Ezra and I went to, uh, to high school together. He just recently made this OJ documentary. He's this incredible filmmaker. Wait, which one? The, the doc, the one that was on ESPN. That was like five. Parts oh my God. Seven and a half hours. The documentary. Yeah, yeah. It was incredible. Yeah. So yeah. this was one in the, one of the earlier documentaries that Ezra had made was about magic and bird. And, you know, it's funny, I, I got together with Ezra because I hadn't talked to him in years. And then I reached out to him because I was doing this project and I thought I should. And we were sitting down for lunch. And before we even opened the menus, he's like, have you heard about this, this Broadway show that they're doing? <gasps> and, and I was like, oh, can I get the check? <laughs> I was like, oh, <clears throat> I didn't know. This he didn't be know? Well, he was like, I mean, he knew, but he was like, can you believe it? And I was like, I can. A uh, couple things. Um, can we have the shrimp and um, some... Uh, some, actually, just some water to drink. We'll be fine. And the check. Yeah, right away. We'll be done. Um, so I, I, I had a fantastic time making it. And, you know, Magic Johnson was around and a lot of, and, you know, Larry Bird came to opening night. And, it, you know, so it was like being around these titans. And, it, and for me, it was also a chance to explore what you, what happens to the warrior when they put down their sword. Mm-hmm. And that was something that, you know, you, you think about a lot. You know, we hopefully work in a business where, there isn't a forced retirement age. You actually can get better at something, you know, right. with sports. I have a very good friend who played professional football and the year of, uh, in the Heights, um, on Broadway was 2008. And that year, the year prior to him, uh, his name is Patrick Kearney played for the Seattle Seahawks. And Patrick was the NFC. Ooh, sorry. I'm just like dropping stuff. <laughs> <laughs> football. Um, Patrick was the NFC defensive player of the year. He was at the top of his field. And I remember having a conversation with him because we were both 31 years old and I was just figuring stuff out and had some road ahead of me. And he was towards the end of a career at 31. Yeah. And so, you know, magic and Larry who kind of seemed like these iconic figures were, you know, younger than me when they had to stop doing this right. thing that they had done their whole life. And that, what do you do when the thing that has defined you is taken away was a really intriguing notion. And so, you know, so we, we had a ball making the show and it just was one of these things where we made a good show that just, it didn't find the audience, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. just, and that's how it goes sometimes, you know, I, sometimes I, I think that making theater, especially commercial theater is, is like you're in the ocean and you're paddling and sometimes you get on the wave and your job is just stay on the wave and it'll take you to shore. Sometimes you're behind the wave and no matter how hard you paddle, you just can't get on the wave. And it doesn't mean it's not worthy. It's just you missed it. Mm-hmm. And so it was one of these things where we made something good, made something we were proud of, made it in a way that we were proud of. And it, 
you know, it, it played to, you know, I don't know, maybe it ran like eight or ten weeks. So more people saw that play than probably any other play I'd ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like there was so much to be proud of. And there it was, and it was part of that season, and then it was gone. And it was a reminder, too, of how something can be there and then not be there yeah. in, you know, very quickly. Um, you know, but, but we, we, had a, we had a blast. Hey, theater people, Patrick here. So I was walking through the theater district the other day, and you guys, the marquees are ablaze. Yes, I said ablaze, with the signage for the new shows. As I've said before, there are 17 shows opening on Broadway and 21 shows opening off-Broadway this fall. So this is the moment, you guys. This is the time to download the Today Ticks app from Google Play or the App Store. Once you have the app, scroll through the shows and the reviews, see the discounted prices, and by the way, Today Ticks has the deepest discounts you'll see anywhere, and then use the app to purchase the tickets right from your phone. Most importantly, remember to use the code THEATERPEOPLE at checkout to save 20 bucks on your first purchase. 20 bucks, you guys. That's like six drinks at any gay happy hour bar in Hell's Kitchen. That code again is THEATERPEOPLE, which of course is theater with an E-R-P-P-L. I am obsessed with Today Ticks, and you should be too. So get the app, find cheap tickets, use the code, see tons of theater. That simple. Today's episode is also being sponsored by Broadway Records. Broadway Records, the record label that brought you Broadway for Orlando's What the World Needs Now is Love, has seven amazing theater releases this month. Seven, you guys. The all-star original Broadway cast recording of Disaster, which is amazing. Jennifer Samard will take you to church, literally, because she plays a nun. Stay with me. The off-Broadway cast recordings of Cagney and You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. The studio cast recording of Like You Like It, featuring theater people fave Leslie Margarita. The new 54 Below albums from two-time Tony winner Norbert Leo Butts and Jay Armstrong Johnson. Just saying those two names in the same sentence has my knees buckling. Humana, humana. And the debut album from songwriter David Malamud. These are just some of the great albums you can get at broadwayrecords.com. So check them out. They are amazing, and I'm obsessed with them. Do you or your company want to sponsor an episode or episodes of Theater People? If so, email me, patrick at theaterpeople.com. And that email address, of course, is theater with an E-R-P-P-L. And let's chat about it. Okay, now back to the show. I think it's time. I think it's time to talk about Hamilton. I'm ready. I don't know what I was expecting to happen just then. The but... entire cast yeah. comes in. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. <laughs> so, okay. So, I, I think it's sort of well known that you sort of first heard the rumblings of Hamilton during In the Heights, right? Correct. When did it... I had a wonderful interview with Alex Lacamoire, who I just like blew, blew my mind. And he was talking about... He said he said something really interesting about how like you were like, okay, like, Lynn, this is great. Let's like get like dates on the calendar. And that blew my mind that like you geniuses create work in the way that other normal humans create work, that you guys like have to give yourselves deadlines and calendars. Somebody's got to be in charge and tell the people to do the work. Can you talk a little bit about that process of like wrangling the geniuses and like making you all come together and create this thing? Well, you know, uh, you know, one step at a time and one day at a time. <laughs> you know, Lynn wrote this song in 2009 and he performed it at the White House um, and I wasn't there. And then I saw it online and I was like, you're right. It went well. <laughs> you were not lying to us. <laughs> Congrats. And then he started working on my shot. And that took him about a year. So we did a benefit at Ars Nova for Freestyle of Supreme, which is this improv hip-hop show that, that I made with Lynn and, and Anthony and a couple of other friends. And that was, in, that was like mid-June of 2011. So at this point, I'd done Lombardi and was 
somewhere in the process maybe of Magic Bird. I, I think somewhere around there. So like these things are kind of happening, which is another reminder. Like you have to just like boil a lot of things because mm-hmm. you don't know what's going to take, and, right. and and also this is the gestation period for for a show is is not what you prescribe it to be. It's going to be what it is. So you know, Lynn then performed this my shot by himself with like some backups from some of our friends and I sort of was looking at Lynn afterward and I said all right so two songs two years let's go <laughs> pick up the pace um, and I said to him what if we found a, a venue six months from now and let's just commit to working on a couple songs a month and so you know fresh off of the you know the warmth of the applause Lynn was like yeah that sounds great <laughs> I, I know the, the when matters just as much as the what yeah. <laughs> that is um, absolutely that's a, big, that's a big thing big thing for me so um uh, Lynn and Bazzetti and I talked the next day, and uh, the Lincoln Center um, songbook series had offered Lynn a slot, and that was six months. Uh, it was in January of 2012. So that gave us something to work towards. We, we then you know, brought Alex um, in to start to do uh, sort of a, a, an orchestration for you know, like five or six pieces. We called some of our friends, seven or eight actors, and said, all right, let's just see what we can do. And so... That, that became the first thing that we were all working towards collectively. So, you know, before that, it was kind of in drips and drabs. It was really Lynn kind of like telling us about this thing. And then in June of 2011, it really sort of kicked in. And then really since, since that point, it was then a series of, of what's next. So we did that, and then we started to think, all right, what's the, what's the next best thing? Should we just sit around a table? Let's now see if there is a narrative structure. Because what the Lincoln Center performance uh, convinced us of is that even if it was called the Hamilton Mixtape and was going to be an album, there was some live theatrical format that would be thrilling. So that gave us the confidence that there was some opportunity there, whether it was a concert, whether it was you know, an event, who knows? Who knew if it was going to be eight times a week and there was going to be a narrative, but we knew that something existed that we wanted to explore. And then it, it was my job, along with our producer, Jeffrey Seller, to try to create some architecture um, to, to help provide some sort of... Uh, plan and system and you know nurturing and guidance and editing and suggestion to try to continue to pull this thing forward and so we ended up doing some very small kind of round the table things over the next year or so and then in in the in the summer of 2014 or 13 2013 we went to New York Stage and Film. Mm-hmm. And Joanna Felser, who runs that, is a, is a friend of mine, and I've been up there to work. And what I knew would be really effective for our group was they really let you design your own curriculum. So if we said we need 10 days, 10 actors, and eight music stands and a piano, great. And then you also have the benefit of being outside the city and just working. There was nothing else to do. So I lived with Alex and Lynn for that you know, week and a half. And there was there was only Hamilton and we just really concentrated on the first act although we had about four songs in the second act I think we had to say no to this both the rap battles and what did I miss wow um, but the rest of it was just concentrating on act one and we we just did it at music stands um, about 150 people saw it we did two presentations of it and that was really the the second public meaning in public um, opportunity we had to explore the show and then that fall we partnered with Oscar Eustace at the public theater and then we started working with them and Jeffrey to continue to do those same kind of sort of small-scale um, sort of reading workshops that then culminated in a larger one in the, in the late spring of 2014 where we staged the first act and then just read the second act. But it was the first time we had Paul Taswell's costumes, um, David Korn's designed some scenery that 
was sort of to, you know, give us some things to play with. But we just turned the lights on. There were maybe six pieces in the band, but it was a full company and choreographed, no turntable. But it did give us a chance to see how the show would interact with the choreographic ideas that Andy had with a lot of the staging ideas we had talked about. And what would the tension be between clothes look like then and music that sounded like now? I have never been the type to try and grab the spotlight. We were at a revel with some rebels on a hot night. Laughing at my sister as she's dazzling the room. And you walked in and my heart went boom. Trying to catch your eye from the side of the ballroom. Everybody's dancing in the band's top volume. Grind to the rhythm as we wind and die. Grab my sister and whisper, yo, this one's mine. I mean, I could talk for an hour about all of my designers. You know, the work that Corns did on this in particular, you know, one of the things that we knew is we wanted to use the elements of the time. And so there's a lot of brick and mortar. There's a lot of wood. There's a lot of steel. There's a lot of rope. Um, the, the people that made things then were shipbuilders. That was something that Oscar Eustace really sort of reminded us of. Even the, the people that made homes were the same people that made the ships. So I wanted it to not look like Deadwood, you know, like, you know, um, but I, I also knew we couldn't run from that. And so David was really a very strong advocate for the turntables, which Andy and I were not sure about. And then after we did this workshop, which went very well, David very boldly said, yes, but I think we can actually use this to our advantage. And here's how. And here are a couple moments. And David had mentioned that in the very first meeting I'd had with him years prior. And Andy and I just sort of got it. We, fi- we finally saw it. And we saw that the turntable and the double turntable could be the passage of time. Oh. Even when you think you're standing still, you're moving, right? Which is what it means to be standing on this rock, mm-hmm. you know, hurtling through the universe. And, you know, there's, there's so much nuance and detail that goes into making something so simple. And, and David's work and David's team's work, you know, Rod Levin's associate, is... Um, it's it's a, it's an exceptional set, and it and it gives you everything you need to tell the story, and that's all the director could ever hope for. I remember that night, I just might regret that night for the rest of my days. I remember those soldier boys tripping right over themselves to win our praise. I remember that dream like candlelight, like a dream that you can't quite place. But Alexander, I'll never forget the first time I saw your face. Were, were you anticipating the phenomenon? Did you did no, you see no, this coming? No, no, no. Really? No. I mean, you know, I I knew the show was of a high quality, and I knew that there was an audience for it, but that that was it. You know, I didn't have any, um, like, I I couldn't look, A, I couldn't look beyond, like, what, you know, what's preview number two, what's preview number three. Yeah. You know, there were some indicators along the way that the appetite for it was significant, but, you know, the video that Lynn made in 2009 was ricocheting around the world. So mm-hmm. it's not like it was just in this last year or so. Like, there were these kind of things along the way. Now, that was in some way the biggest test case because that was millions of people seeing something. Then there was the concert at Lincoln Center, which was like 400 people on one night, and that was it, and then it was gone. And then there were these little things we did, you know, 150 people here, 150 people there. So there are these very small sample sizes after sort of an initial larger sample mm-hmm. size, you know, with that initial song. And, um, you know, there were these, there were these moments, um, you know, because the, the show sold out, you know, well before we started um, doing performances. And we did very little press for the show, although it's hard to imagine now. Yeah, I can't, I can't even remember. There's, there's obviously some press about the show. Yeah, a little bit. Um, and, uh, but between the workshop that we did in May of 2014 and the show's 
preview performances in January 2015, there were no interviews given. There were people writing about the show, but the only interview we did was with Rebecca Mead for The New Yorker, who wrote a very long, wow. long lead piece that she worked on for six or seven months, like a seven or 8,000 word piece about Lynn and the development of the show. That was the only thing that we said yes to. We really wanted to just kind of batten down the hatches and just do the show. But I remember talking to someone at the public um, on our first preview. Our first preview um, was January 20th of last year. And they have like a Today Ticks, you know, thing that they yep. do. Um, and I remember asking, I, I like data, so. <laughs> do you? <laughs> yeah. My uh, husband's yeah. upset. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so I like numbers. And, yeah. And I said, so the Today Ticks, it was either like, and I'm, I don't want to offend anybody, um, but it was either like they gave away two tickets for this auction or it was like they were very discounted for this, for this first preview. It was like something like low price, 15, yeah. you know, 20 bucks, 10 bucks, some of that. And I said, well, you know, how does that work? And I said, well, you know, you just kind of like go to the app and you click on the thing. And I said, oh, well, how did it go today? This was like right before the first show. And they said, well, it's kind of weird, you know, because the number was, was pretty high. And I was like, well, what are the numbers usually? And they're like, well, it really depends on the show. But if you have 1,000... That's a lot. And I said, oh, well, it was a number. They said 12,000. Oh, my God. And we hadn't – there was nothing that existed of the show other than Lynn's very full Twitter feed <laughs> um, <laughs> and anticipation. And I, I think of that – like, the way I describe it is, you know, in, like, the movie when, like, all of the animals are flying out of the forest? <laughs> yeah. And you're like, why are all the animals flying out of the forest? Something going to happen in the forest? And we're like, let's go in. <laughs> um, and you're just like, I think they know something. So it was, it was a bellwet. It was like, oh, something's going on. Um, there's an interest in this show that um, is, is significant. And then what was remarkable about being at the public was it was 290 people at a time, and that was it. There was no cast album. There was nothing online. You know, there was no way to see the show unless you were at the show. And so those first few weeks at the public yeah. were, were extraordinary because – it was so incremental. 290 people is not a lot of people. Oh, my God. It's you know, that and, small of a theater. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so, and, you know, we were so thrilled to be there um, and to be a part of the legacy of that building and to be. Well, and you were talking about season. a chorus line and, and yeah. the, the um, I can't think of the word now, but like the fact that you guys were performing on the stage where a chorus line was and you're, you say you're standing on the shoulders of that yes. song. And I mean, that's an, that's an, and the whole thing about time in your show is such a, that's an incredible circle of life yeah and you know and it was the 40th anniversary of the first preview of course when we were yeah. down there and priscilla lopez is obviously someone that lynn and i got to know very well through the through the making of in the heights and she was such a sort of friend and mentor and you know incredible colleague uh, and and just all around kick-ass human being and so to see her with her group you know that illustrious cast yeah come and see our show on the stage that they stood on for, I mean, it was like the whole thing was like, there were a lot of, lo- it was a lot, yeah. it was, it was meta. <laughs> there was a lot going on. It was like, just be cool, Kale. <laughs> Don't cry. <laughs> um, I never take that advice. Yeah. So that was, that was very meaningful for all of us. Um, we need to end by talking about Grease Live. Sure. Grease is the word, is the word that you heard. It's got groove, it's got me. Oh, Um, what on earth? Like, did they? Co- how did that happen? Um, that happened in uh, in the summer of 2014. Um, so I, I did a 
this concert of Faust um, with Randy Newman at City Center. And I got a call. I remember I was like doing some pre-production there. I was in, I was like in one of the rooms in City Center and my agent called me, uh, a guy named Mark Corman, and he works on the, a lot of the TV stuff. Um, uh, and he said to me, they're starting to meet with people about Grease Live and, you know, these live musicals obviously are something that I know we've talked about. Would that be interesting to you? And I, and I watched all, you know, like I, I, I also, not only did I watch the other ones that my friends had made and, you know, Sound of Music at that time, but, you know, I, like all of those early days with, you know, Arthur Penn and John Frankenheimer and, you know, Rod Serling and Patterns and, the, you know, Mickey Rooney and the Comedian, like uh-huh. all those, like, you know, Omnibus, Playhouse 90. I, I was really, those were really important to me in my 20s when I discovered them. Dan Loria hit me to those. And so I, I got really wow. into those. And so I thought, well, here's a chance to be part of that tradition. I, I believe so deeply in the power of theater. And, you know, here we are talking about Hamilton playing to 290 people at a time. If you do a show on television, there's, there's no exclusivity, right? You know, there's, there's not a barrier. It just, it's going to exist. It's going to be on a broadcast channel, which means everybody who has a television can watch, which means it can be all over the, the country in an instant. And it's free-ish. And it's free. Yeah, it's, and it's pretty free. I mean, yeah. you know, Fox is pretty free. Yeah. And so, and then it will exist on Netflix or iTunes and for, you know a limited, you know, for 10 bucks, then you can also watch it and watch it again. And, and the fact that we make these things that evaporate in the theater, right. You know, that we can talk about magic bird, but if you weren't one of the people that saw it, like it never happened. Greece. I saw it by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, anyway, I liked you. So I was, I was really, I was, I was very keen to try to throw my hat into that environment, you know, and, and say, I want to try to make one of these. I want to try to be part of this larger tradition. And I want to see if I can, make live theater relevant and, and attainable and achievable for, for anybody that wants to see it, you know, cause, cause with Hamilton, I've been going through this experience, you know, even there, like the show had not even been into rehearsal off Broadway, but obviously then was off Broadway. I was working on Gre- on Greece and then we did the Broadway transfer and then I, then I went into rehearsal for Greece. So I had this thing that I made that I was very proud of that was for everybody that was about everybody that not everybody could see. Mm-hmm. And I was able to sort of juxtapose that with this thing I could make this, this like real populist thing that I could make and give to as many people as possible. And so I was, I was really excited to do that. That's so, and, and I know you had directed some TV before that, but did you just know that you could do it? I just knew I, I, I just knew I had a, a very clear idea of how I wanted to do it. And I knew I was going to surround myself with people who had, exceptional skill that I didn't have. So Mark Platt, who was our producer, um, was someone who'd made lots of theater and a ton of movies. Um, Alice Wojcicki, who was our live television director, had directed hundreds of hours of live television, and we really clicked and got along. I brought Corins with me. William mm-hmm. Ivy Long was someone I'd always wanted oh, to work with. God. So, the, you know, come on. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Enough about that. <laughs> um, Tom Kitt was a friend of mine for a decade who had made stuff with all of my friends and hadn't made anything with me, and I thought... You know, he can if he can music direct and orchestrate and arrange, then like I don't have to worry about the music department. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like that's that's a, that's a top flight player. And then I just, you know, I just thought that's what I love. I love putting the team together. I love putting together a group, and you know, and then that team extends and you know, and it ended up being you know four or five hundred people that work on this thing. But God, uh, you know, Bernie Telsey cast the show along with uh, Tiffany and Justin in, in, in his office, and so. I just surrounded myself with a lot of people that I knew and then met a lot of people along the way. Zach Woodley, my choreographer, was someone that Mark Platt knew that I didn't know. And Zach had been on Glee choreographing for five or six years. So he had a real understanding of narrative storytelling for camera 
and also had made theater. So we got along beautifully. Mark introduced me to him. So I just I, so there were a lot of new elements to me. Uh, and what I did was take the things I I knew and share them. And then if I didn't know something, say here's something that I need to learn about, or how can I arm myself in in, in this particular department? And and that's what we did. Are you going to win the Emmy? Do you care? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, I'm, I'm, what if you're like yes? Uh, I think Beyonce's in my category, so I think we know how this one's ending, and it's not with Kale. Um, hey, you guys, it's Patrick at 1031 on Sunday night making a last-minute edit. Tommy won the Emmy. Tommy won the Emmy. He beat Beyonce. Okay, back to the show. You know, I have to say, the fact that the show was recognized in a bunch of categories and that the show as a whole was recognized, it's how I felt with, with Heights. Yeah. It was like, that's our, like the, the win is... I loved how we made it. I'm proud of what we made and it exists and a lot of people saw it and continue to see it. And now, you know, I have nieces and nephews and, you know, my nieces and nephews who are eight and six, Danny and Sandy, it's, it's Aaron and Julianne. Oh my you know, God. Rizzo is, you know, it, it's Vanessa. Yeah. Um, you know, Carly Rae and Ke- like that, you know, for a, for a generation right now, like that I grew up with, like that movie was so iconic and so important to me. And we made something that does not replace that in any way, mm-hmm. but it can be alongside it in some fashion, even as like a, you know, a conversation piece with it. And for a lot of, you know, young people, they now look and see Aaron in those shorts and they're like, oh, <laughs> that's, I'll take that. that's what America is. <laughs> so what's happening? What are you doing now? What's up next for you? Um, well, I'm in rehearsal for the Chicago of production course. right now. So Miguel Cervantes is like a good friend from college. Oh my God, the best. That guy. That guy. So what an amazing, I mean, it, that's like the best news I've ever read. Yeah. And so we and are. Karen Olivo. I know. Who oh, I just. I know. I just like live for. Yes. She's, I mean, so it, it, I mean, and being back together with Karen and, um, you know, Josh Henry is playing Burr and mm-hmm. Josh and I met, oh, God, Josh, Josh and I might've met in Pearl studios. Wow. Um, uh, plug. A lot of magic happens in these rooms. Free rehearsal space. Um, I also like um, Water by... um, So Josh Henry's playing Burr, who I met, and then I think his his first New York show was in the Ensemble of Heights. Oh, wow. um, And now here he is, obviously, in in this full-bloom career to be back in the room with him. And then there's... It's just an incredibly talented group. So we're in the middle of our fourth week right now. We go to Chicago um, September 12th, and then our first performance is the 27th. So I'm doing that, and you know we're casting London, um, and Alex and I just went over to do some preliminary auditions, which was really fun. Wow. And then getting ready for San Francisco, and then I'm doing a play at the public called Tiny Beautiful Things. Oh, wow. Which is uh, adapted by Nia Vardalis who's also starring in it. And wow. it's based on a book by Cheryl Strayed, who wrote Wild. This was another book about this uh, series of advice columns that she'd, she'd written. And uh, um, we are turning it into a play. Neofordalis. Why do I know that name? Uh, she was in many things, including My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Which oh, Neofordalis. Of course, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Connie and Carla. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my Life in Ruins. <laughs> yes. My, Greek, my Big Fat Greek Wedding too. Both of them. <laughs> she was in both. She, she did them both. Um, so, <clears throat> so, yeah. So, so I'm... Doing that and then, um, you know, some other stuff, but like a, a lot of theater, I, you know, I, I was very excited kind of coming out of Greece to, I did a couple plays this spring, which was really nice just to be in a room with, you know, six boxes and four people and totally. no golf carts <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and see what we could do. But I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm so proud to make theater and to be part of this community and to, 
get to talk to people like you that care oh. about it as much as I do mm-hmm. um, and advocate it in the way that you do. So I, I'm, I'm happy to get a chance to talk to you. And usually like every 13 years, it's pretty good for is, me. Isn't that hilarious? I'm like, you I guys know I, I actually did I know him. I, I didn't know him. Back. It. I don't believe it. I was like, please take the, <laughs> please don't give my cell phone number out. Will you come back and talk to us again? Yes, absolutely. I am obsessed with you. I'm so happy to see you again. I'm just like in awe of you as always. Thank oh, you for well, doing this. You're very nice to say so. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's so good to see you. Okay, bye. bye. I got chills. They're multiplying. And I'm losing control. Theater People is a product of Theater Podcast Productions and is produced by Mike Jensen and me, Patrick Hines. I edited this episode. You guys, we have the most amazing intern, Miss Ricky Condos, who's leaving us tomorrow to head back to school. She has worked so hard this summer, and we literally could not have done all that we did without her. We love you, Ricky. Come back to us. Special thanks to our sponsor today, Tix. Download the app in Google Play or the App Store and use the code THEATERPEOPLE at checkout to save 20 bucks on your first purchase. That code again is THEATERPEOPLE, which of course is theater with an E-R-P-P-L. Special thanks also to Steve Tipton, Bradley Bean, Eric Emsch, Keith Allen Herzog, Ellen Marie Marsh, and the staff at Oswald's. We'll be back next Monday with the legendary Rebecca Luker, who is delightful. Until then, tell your friends about us. Let's get the theater community talking. If you feel